Hey, what the health listeners? Are you in D.C. or coming to D.C. next week? We're having a live taping at 11.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 13th here at the Kaiser Family Foundation. If you'd like to join us, you can RSVP on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Don't worry if you can't make it. The podcast will be in your feed as usual next Thursday afternoon. Hope to see you there. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday, February 6th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Happy to be here. Later in the episode, we'll talk to KHN's Julie Appleby and NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin about the latest bill of the month. This month's patient went to an out-of-network hospital for an emergency appendectomy, and you can guess what happened from there. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let us start this week with the State of the Union, which President Trump delivered Tuesday night. There was perhaps less health content than some had been expecting, but it was still more than enough to take it in pieces. So first up, pre-existing conditions. Trump has been saying for a long time now that he will protect insurance for people with pre-existing conditions, just like the Affordable Care Act does. Here's how he put it in the speech. I've also made an ironclad pledge to American families. We will always protect patients with pre-existing conditions. But that's not exactly what his administration has done so far, yes? Well, as we've discussed before on the pod, um, not only is the administration um, arguing in court right now to strip away the Affordable Care Act, particularly its protections for pre-existing conditions. But the administration has sort of chipped away in other ways at those protections, uh, making um, insurance plans that don't uh, necessarily cover with people with pre-existing conditions or charge them more, more widely available. Um, And um, now there's uh, all of these different uh, policies that have contributed to the number of uninsured people going up, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, this when he's made this claim on Twitter before, it's always, you know, pants on fire, falls, falls, falls. And, and this was another case of that. And yet he keeps doing it. Why Why does the president keep insisting that he's protecting pre-existing conditions when it is fairly easy to show that he is not? I think it's a really popular policy. And in the absence of a particular set of health policy proposals of his own, I think it is easier for him to just make this claim and take a little bit of – the flack for from the fact checkers than it is for him to say anything else. I think uh, so. I was fact checking the evening of the State of the Union, and I rated this claim as totally false. And uh, I did get a little pushback from some people who said, "Well, you know, he's talking about what he will do in the future. We don't know what he will do in the future." And I felt like the falsity of the statement really hinged on the always. I will always do this because it is true that it is totally possible. 
that there is some other way to protect people with pre-existing conditions besides the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act does it in one way. There are other ways you could do it. Um, and if the president had a plan that uh, he laid out that took care of this problem, then I think you could say, OK, like he has a different way. And he, even though he's fighting the Affordable Care Act in court, even though he has tried to weaken it through regulation, even though he has supported legislation in the past that would really weaken these pr- protections, he has a new plan of the future. And so he's talking about the future he will. But, you know, here we are uh, a couple of days after the State of the Union. He still doesn't have a plan. He does not have an explicit way to carry out that promise. And so I think it is reasonable to say that this is basically just an untrue statement and his repetition of it is not connected to some future vision that he has. It's just a kind of politically expedient way of dealing with this difficult issue. And Kimberly, they – I mean – the president kept saying, the administration kept saying they were going to come out with a, their own plan and then they just decided to punt, right? Yeah, they still haven't. What's interesting is everyone that I talk to that's close to the president say that he wants them to come up with some kind of a plan, um, which is interesting because, frankly, it's a lot easier politically to run against something like Medicare for all than it is to run for something. We kind of saw that with Democrats when they you know, ran against Republican efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. So Because of its protection for <laughs> Because of its protections for pre-existing conditions. But also it's so much easier. And we saw Republicans see some success with this before, too, when they ran against Obamacare. It's just easier politically to, you know, have something to attack instead of having something to defend that, you know, potentially overhauls the healthcare system. All right. Well, let's move on to Medicare. Uh, Back in 2016, then-candidate Trump vowed never to cut Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security. That promise is back, sort of. Here's how he put it. And we will always protect your Medicare, and we will always protect your Social Security, always. So he's already cut Medicaid out of that promise since his administration has now tried to reduce both enrollment and funding for Medicaid in a variety of ways, the latest being the block grant proposal out just last month. But that whole we won't cut Medicare or Social Security is now in question too, right? Well, it's it's hard to say because he will sort of – change what he says depending on who he's talking to. And so recently, a lot of people's alarm bells went off because he said in a very offhand way that he was open to looking into... At an interview in Davos. Exactly. Reforms to to Medicare. Um, and people said, this is a sign that he's going to do this. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think you you know he's been known to sort of speak off the cuff and then not follow through. I mean, we've seen that sort of when he voices support for more progressive ideas as well, and this is a more conservative idea. But uh, I think that um, people are especially afraid that should he win re-election and then not have to fear political blowback, um, that this being a longtime Republican priority uh, to curb uh, social safety net spending, that this would be on the table. And Medicare is is still – the Medicare trust fund is uh, – inching closer and closer to insolvency. So one could argue that something actually does have to be done about Medicare, right? I think we'll get a good uh, preview of where the president really is on Medicare on Monday. There's going to be the federal budget is going to be released. And, you know, every year when the president's budget is released, uh, we see, you know, a lot of Medicare policies typically in that. And, you know, when you see a president that wants to make major reductions to Medicare spending. They have a lot of proposals to make major reductions to Medicare spending. And when you have a president who doesn't, then they don't. And I would say so far, 
it is fair on the Medicare side to rate this claim as true for Trump. So far, I think he has proposed some provisions that would save money in the Medicare program. So I think he's been attacked from the left sometimes as he promised not to cut Medicare and, you know, look at these hundreds of billions of dollars of savings in his budgets. But a lot of those are kind of, I would describe them as sort of technocratic, wonky little fixes to deal with little loopholes or other problems. Many of them were in President Obama's budgets as well. So we'll see. You know, it could be that uh, on Monday we'll see a budget where they're suddenly taking a much bigger whack at Medicare, making more structural changes, take, really trying to take either benefits or people out of the program. But uh, so far, I think he has kept his promise on that. On the Social Security side, I just will note that there are a couple of different programs in Social Security. So there is the kind of retirement benefit, which is the core Social Security program that we all think about. And it is true that he has made no changes there. But on the Social Security disability programs, they have made some regulatory changes that are almost guaranteed to result in reduced enrollment in those programs. They're uh, making it a little harder for people to stay enrolled once they are once they have a disability. They're making them uh, go through a lot of medical testing to check that they continue to be disabled, that they continue to be eligible over time. And disability rights activists say that this is a kind of uh, paperwork hurdle that uh, could cause some people who are eligible to lose benefits. So I think uh, maybe a little less true on the Social Security side than on the Medicare side. And and one of the ironies here is that if – and we'll get to drug prices in a minute, but doing something about drug prices in Medicare could – could be described as cutting Medicare. I mean, it's reducing Medicare costs. So, I mean, it all depends on how you paint it, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's a lot, increasing amount of money that goes toward drug prices. And um, as, you know, Politico reported and Axios has reported, apparently we are going to see something on reducing what seniors pay for insulin specifically. So that could that could be a part of it as well. Um, and and just to note, in terms of um, saving on drug prices in Medicare, um, you know, House Democrats have proposed plowing those savings back into expanding and making the benefits under Medicare more generous. Dental care. Exactly. <laughs> and so uh, it's hard to describe it as a cut to Medicare that's true. if you're giving it back to Medicare. That, that's a very good point. All right. Well, let's move on. I want to talk about transparency, Margot's favorite issue. <laughs> One of the issues Trump has pursued See is, you in court. <laughs> yes, is price transparency, particularly for hospitals. He made another push for it in the speech. Many experts believe that transparency, which will go into full effect at the beginning of next year, will be even bigger than health care reform. Which is all well and good, but the hospital industry isn't going to let this take effect without a fight, right, Alice? Right. It's it's not certain it's going to go into effect next year because uh, they're arguing in court right now um, over over these provisions uh, that would force hospitals to disclose their prices. Margo, even if this does happen, we don't know that it's going to work. Yeah, we don't know if it's going to work. Uh, it is true that there are experts who have told the president that this will be bigger than health reform. That That is, is true. There are some experts who think that, but I think that it is not not the consensus of economists who look at these issues. Uh, we really just don't have very good evidence about this question. This kind of price transparency in this country, in this sector of the economy, there's very little precedent for it. I've talked about this before, the sort of famous study that the CBO relies on, that the FTC relies on, and that many uh, serious health economists rely on is one that looked at what happened when there was price transparency in the market for Danish concrete in the 1990s. So that study said that price transparency actually raises prices, but you can decide whether or not you think Danish concrete is a good analogy here or not. I'm sorry you didn't wear your Danish concrete t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> the 
other example that I think is worth thinking about is the state of New Hampshire has some price transparency. It's not; it's more limited in terms of the number of services, but experts say that they have presented the data in about as user-friendly a way as you could possibly imagine. And I've spent some time with that website, and so I know that it is a very good website. And the experience there has been that there have been some reductions in prices for certain kinds of services, like imaging services, but not massive, not what the president is talking about, not bigger than health reform, not he used the word massive, uh, I think, you know, a couple percentage point uh, price declines for imaging services. So, you know, again, I think like part of what's exciting about this policy is it's so new and we don't know. And it will be interesting to see what happens. But I think the president has really exaggerated in this uh, statement what it will do. And a a key piece of this is that even by the government's own calculations, the amount of health care services that a human being can conceivably shop for at all uh, is very slim. It's it's a tiny fraction of the healthcare services people need and use. And so um, it's great, theoretically, to have the prices up there. You could also debate that, you know, showing the official list price isn't that helpful when you don't know what exactly you would have to pay under your particular insurance in a particular year. But even if you uh, are an informed consumer and have the time and, and ability to compare prices, um, that doesn't help you in an emergency or in a lot of other circumstances. Like so much in healthcare, something that's good in principle and complicated when you get to the details. All right, let's move on and then I'll come back to you, Kimberly. Uh, we will get to Iowa and Democratic health debate shortly, but one of the things we've talked about a lot, and we've talked about it here already, is how much Republicans are relishing running against Medicare for all because they can call it socialism and the president did not miss his chance in his speech. 132 lawmakers in this room have endorsed legislation to impose a socialist takeover of our health care system, wiping out the private health insurance plans of 180 million very happy Americans. And he also added this tidbit. Over 130 legislators in this chamber have endorsed legislation that would bankrupt our nation by providing free taxpayer-funded health care to millions of illegal aliens forcing taxpayers to subsidize free care for anyone in the world who unlawfully crosses our borders. So unlike his other claims, this one is actually true, not the bankrupting part, but that it would provide care to people who are are undocumented. Right. (laughs) Right. That's definitely questionable. (laughs) Right. Presidential candidates who back Medicare for all have said that they want to extend that coverage to people who are living here illegally. What's interesting is that if you actually look at the bill that's in the House, it doesn't explicitly say that. It gives the authority to whoever is in charge of health and human services. So that would mean should we pass Medicare for all someday, the decision as to whether people who are undocumented would receive health care coverage or not would depend on who's running the administration. So you could see that going back and forth in the way that we see this going on with the Obama administration and the Trump administration. That's right. And, you know, I kept, when they were passing the ACA and there were so many pieces of the bill that said, you know, the secretary shall determine, it's like, did it never occur to you that the secretary might not always be someone who thinks this is a great idea? <laughs> I, I was also interested because Elizabeth Warren lists comprehensive immigration reform as a pay for for Medicare for all under her plan. And so conceivably in, you know, in this world that is not very likely where both of those things would pass, uh, you would have the economic savings of comprehensive immigration reform, and then there would be way fewer undocumented people at all. And, you know, this would mean more 
taxpayers paying into the system and receiving health care. And so it's it's very murky. <laughs> I also think there's – if we're going to quibble, uh, we could quibble with socialist um, – I do think that Medicare for All is an attempt to socialize health insurance and to make it a government function, but it would not socialize the entire health care system, which I think is sort of an important distinction. If you think about a country like England where the government owns the hospitals, employs all the physicians, nurses, and other health care providers, that's a fully socialized health care system. The VA system in the United States is another example of this. Um, what Medicare for All f- would uh, Medicare for All would do is it would socialize health insurance, so everyone would get their health insurance from the government, but it would preserve uh, the private system for healthcare provision. Now, it would exert a lot of control over that, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think socialism is more of a stretch than an untruth. But uh, that distinction, I think, is sometimes lost in the president's rhetoric that a lot of a private provision of healthcare services would stay the way that it is. Polling shows that invoking socialism is not as effective a boogeyman as it used to be. <laughs> the public is a lot more sort of open and amenable to hearing about it and to critiques of capitalism. And so it, it's interesting to me that Republicans are leaning very, very hard on this talking point. I mean, obviously, it, it must appeal to older and more conservative voters for sure. Um, But uh, I think it'll be very instructive how this plays out in the election. And and I guess we're going to get to Iowa next. We are. And those polls. All right. Well, one more first. The president did talk about drug prices, maybe not as much as we expected. This is another issue where he has fought very hard, but not accomplished all that much. So it was the one place he deliberately called on Congress for help. I'm calling for bipartisan legislation that achieves the goal of dramatically lowering prescription drug prices. Get a bill on my desk and I will sign it into law immediately. So, of course, the House has already passed Bill uh, back in December, which they reminded him by chanting about it during the speech. Uh, but I guess nobody really noticed because, you know, impeachment was happening. So where are we on this whole drug price issue? I mean, now everybody's mad at each other. Are they really going to be able to do anything? Well, when they uh, passed the spending bill at the end of last year, they said they were going to take another whack at uh prescription drug prices ahead of of May. And I mean, I don't see a lot of momentum in terms of, you know, reaching a bipartisan consensus. There's a lot of kind of raw emotions and hurt feelings since, you know, the impeachment process. And there's also the fact that, you know, Democrats passed their own bill, which is a non-starter for Republicans. It allows uh, Medicare to directly uh, set drug prices. And so there's um, that's kind of a non-starter there for a lot of Republicans. But then there is a bill that he um, talked that he sort of alluded to that is bipartisan that passed out of the Senate Finance Committee. However, uh, Mitch McConnell still hasn't pledged to bring it to the floor. And some Republicans oppose it because it imposes penalties on on drug companies who raise who spike their prices too too quickly. Anybody have have any any cool thoughts about drug prices? It's it's telling that the president is calling for a drug bill to sign and not for a particular drug bill to sign. You may recall there was sort of a similar dynamic when they were trying to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, where you know the president I think has a lot of power to try to influence policymaking. uh, You know not. He can't force members of Congress to vote in a way that they don't want to. But this president tends to exert his power in this very vague way, which I think actually doesn't really cause members of Congress to make tough choices. If he had come out and endorsed the Senate finance bill in a more specific way, maybe it would have put some pressure on those reluctant Republicans to vote for it or on uh, Mitch McConnell to bring it to the floor. But I think this kind of vague 
request. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we won't get some kind of drug bill, but I think it means more. I want to signal that I care about this issue and that it's Congress's fault that we haven't solved it. And I think that it also diminishes the urgency when the president is in the same speech claiming that drug prices are already going down, which is not exactly true. <laughs> and so, yes, we fact checked that one and right. basically said that he's still, he was not correct when he said it last year and he's still not correct. Right, right. They are going up. In, in a more slow fashion, but they are still going up. Um, so I think that takes the urgency out of it as well. You can't both claim things are great and that there is an urgent need um, to <laughs> enact reforms. Um, and I think Margo's exactly right about, you know, the president has the power, especially with so many Senate Republicans up for re-election this year. You know, they don't want to do anything that uh, goes against the president, goes against um, the, the base. And so they are really looking for for political cover here. <laughs> All right. Well, that that's what's going on with Republicans. Let's talk about the Democrats, specifically Iowa. Uh, the Democrats had their their caucuses and things did not go very well with the new app that was supposed to speed up reporting of results. As of this taping, we still do not have 100 percent. And thanks to some good work by The New York Times, it turns out that some of the results that we have may not be right. But <laughs> one thing we do know is that going into the caucuses, the top issue, aside from defeating President Trump, remains Healthcare, but what if anything do the results, such that we have them, tell us about where voters are on this sort of big picture issue of Medicare for all versus a public option or something less sweeping? Can can we tell anything from what we know? It seemed to track very closely with Kaiser's national polling, uh, which is basically that um, a, a majority of Democrats are. Um, in favor of Medicare for all, but an even larger majority are in favor of a public option. Um, and and um, so I, I think that having that reflected on a state level from a different data set, these entrance polls to the caucuses is is informative. And it, it really like sort of solidifies that picture. Yeah, no, I'm talking about, though, I mean, so we have it, it appears that Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are pretty much tied or close to it. And then Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are a little bit further back. But that's not what you would sort of assume. I mean, it doesn't seem to to give us a lot of clarity about where the public is on health care because it looks it sure, certainly looks like they're making decisions based on a lot of other things. I think also knowing that Democrats rate health care as a really important issue doesn't necessarily tell us which of the Democratic proposals are the most important to them. It may just tell us, like, we want a Democrat uh, or we want to protect pre-existing conditions or something that's not even really core to the particular proposals of these candidates. We know, you know, uh, from lots of other polling that there are a lot of considerations that are weighing on voters as they consider these different candidates, including, I think, uh, really importantly, electability. You know, they want a Democrat to win. They want to know which Democrat can win. There are definitely some voters who care a lot about the fine print on health care and they're voting on that basis. But uh, many are making their selections on other for other reasons. Yeah, I've just I've been amazed listening. I've listened to way too many interviews with Iowa voters in the last couple of weeks. But they're all about, you know, you know, we feel like there's people in these lanes. There's sort of the the, the liberal Medicare for all lane and the more moderate 
public option or something else lane. I mean, which which those are proxies for other issues too. But I find people saying, well, I really like Elizabeth Warren, but if you know if she's not gonna gonna win, then I'm gonna go for Amy Klobuchar, who's a moderate. Or you know, it's not. You would think in that not, situation, not based on policy. right? That 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 yeah, that the people you know, if they want Elizabeth Warren, that their second choice would be Bernie Sanders or vice versa, and if they want Pete, Pete Buttigieg, that their second choice would be Biden or Klobuchar and vice versa. And that's just not what I've been hearing. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why individual voters pick their candidates of choice. And I think the number of voters who are deciding based on a very sort of detailed set of policy preferences is much lower than you might imagine and much lower than probably it would be for any of us who are so interested in policy. You know, people are making decisions in some cases on basis of identity. They will either people who would really like a woman candidate uh, to prevail in this process. There are some who are making decisions on the basis of who sort of looks and acts presidential. They're making decisions on the basis of experience. They're making decisions on the basis of their overall kind of philosophy of governance. And I think also electability is really important. Yeah, I think it's most and important. And I think this it's year. also a good reminder that even as we debate all of these differences between the Democratic candidates, those differences are very, very small compared to the differences between where the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are at on health care. And so it, it may be the fact that Buttigieg and Sanders are now, you know, neck and neck um, could just be a reflection of like, look, even though one is, you know, hardcore Medicare for all and one has spoken quite critically of Medicare for all. In the end, they both say we're going to expand, you know, public health care to millions of people and that's sort of the takeaway. Yes, this is the continuing frustration of uh, abortion rights activists who say, why aren't the candidates, you know, talking, debating abortion? It's like because they don't disagree. (laughs) It's nothing for them to debate. They're basically all in the same place. Um, it just it gets them annoyed. All right. Well, one more quick one this week. Um, I thought that we would do a little reality check on what's happening on the ground while Democrats and Republicans fight with each other. There is a research article in the latest edition of the Policy Journal Health Affairs that finds that starting in the second quarter of 2017, just as Congress and President Trump were starting their effort to repeal and replace the ACA, coverage gains from the end Uh, of 2013 through 2016 were partly reversed. And not only did the uninsured rate rise by more than a percentage point, but other indicators of access to care also rose and rose among those least able to afford care. I know we mostly talk about prices because that's what voters say they care about. But are we losing sight of the fact that more people are actually losing insurance too? I hope we're not. I keep reporting about it. (laughs) Um, You know, this this is important. People, you know, I think as we have talked about and we write about, health insurance is not always um, a perfect product. Sometimes it doesn't cover services or doctors or hospitals that people need. And sometimes it has big financial holes that leave them with big bills even when they think things are covered. Uh, but I do think that there is very strong evidence from very long line of literature that having health insurance really does improve people's access to care, their willingness to seek it when they need it, and it does improve their financial security, their likelihood of having bills in collection or going into bankruptcy. Uh, so when people lose health insurance, uh, that often means that they have less access to health care. It means they have less access to financial stability if they do get sick. And in fact, there have recently been two pretty convincingly done studies that have shown 
that the coverage expansion under Obamacare seems to be associated with mortality effects. So that's new research. We never really knew before whether Meaning health insurance people who have insurance are, are less, less likely, likely to, to die. die. So we didn't know that before. That's new research. Uh, there's kind of research for many decades has been inconclusive on this point. Uh, we kind of assume that you're buying something with your health insurance in, in the form of improved health. But these new studies, including one that was effectively a randomized controlled trial, uh, have found actually that people who got health insurance through Obamacare were in fact less likely to die than people who did not get them. And so that means we should care about the fact that people are losing out on health insurance coverage. Uh, kind of under the hood of these reductions are obviously complex factors. There are different groups and different reasons why people don't have insurance. And you know, not all of them are the fault of any one policymaker. But I do think that it is something that is worth keeping our eye on. And obviously, as we consider the ongoing legacy of the Affordable Care Act, a big goal of it was to really push down on the number of Americans without health insurance. And if there's backsliding, that in some ways is a dent in that legacy. And I think it also highlights how even the Democratic candidates who are proposing much more incremental and moderate um, health care plans would still make a big difference. And and like you said, um, you know, a lot of people are, are becoming uninsured because they are in the unsubsidized portion and they can't they can't afford the very high premiums in the individual market. Uh, a lot of the moderate candidates have proposed um, making subsidies available to those with a little bit higher incomes, which would capture some of that population, also would incentivize states that haven't expanded Medicaid to do so. Um, and so I think that, all you know, while these pieces are, you know, so much smaller than sweeping Medicare for all, they would make a big difference. And, you know, just as we've seen millions of people become uninsured over the last couple of years, we could see those same millions <laughs> come back in. Yeah, we should point out the corollary to your comment that the differences between the Democrats are nothing compared to the difference between Democrats in general and President Trump. I think that it is also true that in any other election cycle, the proposals that are being put forward by the more, quote unquote, moderate candidates are really sweeping. Most of them are more sweeping than the Affordable Care Act itself. It just looks more moderate compared to Medicare for all. So, And, that, and I think that's true on the Republican side as well. I mean, Republicans failed in their sweeping attempts to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and impose some conservative alternative. Um, but they've succeeded in chipping away at, at at it in all these much smaller, more under-the-radar ways. All right. Well, that is as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we will play the Bill of the Month interview I taped earlier this week, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my current colleague, KHN's Julie Appleby, and my former colleague, NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin, who both reported the latest Bill of the Month. Hi, ladies. Thank you both for being here. Hello. Thanks. Um, so this month's bill comes from North Carolina from a pretty healthy young guy who had insurance and yet still got stuck with a really big bill. Selena, tell us who he is and how he entered the medical system. So this guy's name is Josh Bates. He's 28 years old. He's really really super tall. I'm 5'2", and he's 6'5", so he was really towering over me. Um, he is a very friendly guy and pretty healthy. About two years ago in July, he started feeling really bad, like aches, pains, fever. He went to a minute clinic. He was just trying to ride it out. But at a certain point, he was like, this is not good. Something is very, very wrong. And he called his roommate, Nick, who came home and drove him to the nearest hospital. And it turns out he had appendicitis 
He was told he had minutes before his appendix was going to rupture. So they got him into surgery that night, and he was out the next morning. The The medical side of things went pretty well. Uh, but well, he then, was a young guy having a routine operation. Exactly. But you know how these stories go. Then the bill came. And the bill was how much? It was $41,211.75. And he had insurance, right? He did. He had insurance through his job. Um, he's a technical recruiter at an IT staffing firm, which is a walking distance from his house. Um, and he said he didn't choose, like, the bare bones plan. He thought he was getting a pretty decent insurance plan and pays about $200 a month for it. But it turns out that because of technical reasons, he was kind of in this weird legal gray zone. Which we'll get into. Which we'll get into, <laughs> yes. So he did have insurance, and yet he was still expected to pay how much of that? In the end, after he paid his coinsurance deductible and the, his insurance paid some of the bill, he was left with about $28,000. And a year and a half later, that's still what he owes. And he was not happy when he saw that bill, right? Yeah. He describes opening the first major bill to come in, and uh, it was a bit of a shock. When you see the, the $41,211.75, your, your life kind of flashes before your eyes. You're like, oh, my God. So, Julie, there are rules about getting bills paid when you go out of network in an emergency. And he did go out of network, but it was an emergency. Um, clearly, an about-to-burst appendix qualifies as an emergency. So why didn't any of those rules apply? Well, there are a lot of rules. So the first rule is the hospital has to take care of you whether you can pay or not under the federal law. So they took care of him. And the Affordable Care Act says your insurance has to cover the plan, but then the question is how much do you have to pay? And in the absence of a federal law, a lot of states have passed some rules about if you go in an emergency, how much do you owe? His state is one of them. It says you should be limited to what the in-network amount would be. If you'd gone in-network, how much would you have to pay? However, Josh Bates, like many other people, works for a company that offers him insurance that is self-funded. So his employer pays the bills and therefore it is not subject to state law. So, so, so state wait, wait, I want to I want to mm-hmm. go back and hit this though. Even though his he his employer provides insurance, the employer doesn't get it from an insurance company. Right. The employer pays the bills. They usually have some kind of administrator who handles the claims and that type of thing. But the employer is self-funded. That's what that means. They pay their bills themselves. So it looks like if you're the employee, it looks like you have insurance through an insurance company. You have no real way of knowing unless you ask. No, sure. He has a company that's called Continental Benefits, which is the insurer. They send him his explanation of benefits, which did show the $28,000 that he may owe. Unfortunately, the state law does not apply to those types of workplace health insurance plans. And to be clear, this bill is a little bit out of what would be the norm for this uh, type of procedure. Um, You know, these things vary. But if you look on something called Healthcare Blue Book, which calculates costs based on claims data, they estimate this laparoscopic appendectomy, which is what he had. The range of costs is about $10,000 to about 30000 in his zip code, but the fair price, which is what they calculate as being somewhere between what full charges would be and what most insurers would pay, is about $12,000. So he got a bill for the 41000 Now, out of network, another firm called Fair Health has an out of network estimate, and they estimate it would be nineteen thousand dollars. But that's still about eleven thousand dollars less than what the hospital says he still owes. What do you do if you're a patient and you don't want to end up in his situation? Right. Well, first of all, obviously, if you can go to an in network facility, obviously in his case he could not. He was rushed to the the closest one. So in the absence of that, the experts say, you know what, you should check with your state to see if there's some rules to protect you. 
you should look on something like Healthcare Blue Book or Fair Health and figure out what the price might be and try to negotiate with the hospital. Some folks say you should try to get your employer or your insurer to pay the rest of that balance bill. If they don't do that, you try to negotiate with the hospital, bring it down. Some people are also attempting to go to court and say, hey, these prices aren't right and under contract law, it gets very complicated, but they're trying to challenge it in court. But this is very difficult because it's expensive to hire a lawyer. In Josh's case, that's a really big bill. It might be worth it. If it's only a few hundred dollars, it may not. So that's what people could do is check around with your state, try to negotiate a lower rate, see if your employer and your insurer will cover it. And where is he with this bill? Does he still owe this money? He does. It's been more than a year, obviously. He's been working on this. He did get a phone call after we started making some calls from a hospital administrator who said he wanted to work with him and see if they could help work it out. But at the end of the day, a hospital spokesperson sent me a note saying that they are happy to work with him and help him work with his insurer to get any money that the insurer would owe him. So essentially, they're saying the insurer should pay more. And his insurer is not really – it didn't chat with us and tell us what their plans were because they say this is the subject of litigation right now potentially, so they don't want to comment on it. So he said to me, you know, I kind of feel like I'm kind of stuck. Both both sides are pointing at each other saying it's their problem, it's their problem. And and in the meantime, his credit score has been effective and he's got this $28,000 bill still hanging over his head. Yes, Selena, this this was not good timing for him, right? Yeah. I mean, he actually reached out to Bill of the Month in the fall when he was started started looking for a house. He has a big German shepherd who's very sweet named Darko. Um, and he gets outside with him but was really hoping to have a yard. And he described it as the next step in adulthood as a 28-year-old. So he and uh, his mom had started kind of scoping places out and they'd even visited one. And a week after they started that process, he got a notice that his credit score had dropped 200 points. So he, you know, he's feeling quite hopeless, honestly. He says that he was told while this bill was in dispute, it would not affect his credit. It clearly has. It's affecting his life, and he says he thinks about it every day. And we have another cut of tape from him, yes? Yes, we do. You pay this money for insurance. You you do everything right, and somehow you still wind up in the crossfire between the two big corporations. I've made the joke, you know, God, if... If I would have known I had to go through all this, you know, I, I would have cut the thing out myself. Which, which seems a little bit drastic. Maybe not great advice. Seriously, I think that uh, Josh and a lot of other people kind of feel like, you know, the worst part of the experience is not the actual surgery, the actual medical care. It's the the nightmare that follows in the billing. There may be a solution. Congress has been discussing a balance bill proposal. It didn't pass by the end of the last year. There's still some thought that it might work out, uh, perhaps. It's an election year. But that would cover people like Josh who have coverage through a job that's self-funded. Until that, there's not a federal solution. So a lot of people who get their insurance through work could face this kind of thing. We'll keep an eye on whether at least the public notice will get something moving on this. Thank you both, Julie Appleby, Selena Simmons-Duffin. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. 
Kimberly, why don't you start this week? Sure. Well, I picked a story from The Tennessean uh, by Brett Kalman, who I follow on Twitter and always does really great work covering the legislature there, just want to say. Um, so it's the title of the story is Governor Bill Lee proposes extending postpartum 10 care, which is the state's medi- Medicaid uh, coverage to a full year. And I thought that was just a really interesting turn of events, given that uh, Tennessee has not expanded Medicaid. They've applied to uh, block grant Medicaid with the Trump administration. And here we have a proposal that extend, that essentially would extend uh, Medicaid to uh, more women. Um, and this is in light of uh, high rates of maternal mortality. And there are proposals in Congress to do something similar on a national scale. Yeah, we should point out, I think a lot of people don't know this, pregnant women are eligible for Medicaid, but you lose it really fast after you give birth. The, you're, the, the child remains eligible um, if you're if you qualify financially, but the, but the mother does not. Right. And the reason this is getting more attention is because studies are showing that it's not right during birth that women are having a lot of health problems and some of them are dying, but a lot of them are having, uh, tens of thousands are having, you know, disability essentially. Um, And that's happening a year after they give birth. So that's why we're seeing these kinds of proposals come up. Margo. Uh, I wanted to draw attention to an article from The New York Times by Mike Baker that takes a really close look at a really appalling set of circumstances around a veterinarian named Dr. Daniel Kohler, uh, who has practiced in Oregon and California. And essentially what it finds is that uh, the veterinary boards in these states are really lax and have failed to discipline vet a vet who has mistreated and uh, appears to have killed several animals under his care. And, uh, I mean, the story by itself is kind of appalling and I think a real call for uh, better regulation of veterinarians. But uh, part of what made me so sad about this article is I think it really has echoed uh, a lot of reporting about state medical boards for physicians as well. We just don't have a very good system for disciplining doctors who harm patients. We have a medical malpractice system that uh, does get some rewards often, for, not rewards, but uh, compensation often for the victims of medical errors. But uh, many times doctors who behave unethically or violently will have multiple episodes that will be brought to the attention of the medical board and they will not lose their license. Or if they lose a license in one state, they will be able to move to another state and that will not follow them. And so anyway, I think just this story uh, obviously suggests that we should uh, – that states ought to work on what they're doing to sanction and uh, discipline veterinarians who behave unethically. But uh, also uh, there's room for improvement in medical boards as well. Alice. So with all of the news about the coronavirus outbreak uh, and the Trump administration uh, implementing the first mandatory quarantines we've seen in half a century, um, there was a very good piece in The Washington Post, uh, States Scramble to Carry Out Trump's Coronavirus Travel Order. So there's the quarantine piece of it and the travel ban part of it, um, banning um, foreign nationals who have been to China in the last couple weeks um, from entering the United States unless they are related to a U.S. citizen, um, or there's some other small loopholes as well. But um, this basically details that um, state officials are in charge of overseeing the the quarantines and and the screenings at airports and um, uh, checking up on the people who are supposed to be sent home to self-quarantine. And with our uh, public health infrastructure and workforce uh, very diminished um, uh, over the past couple decades, um, and 
uh, the state officials uh, in this piece said they got barely any advance notice of this, um, not very clear instructions. There was really uh, a, a scramble, um, and they're sort of making it up as they go along, uh, and uh, we will see. And I think because there's so much we don't know about the virus itself, um, this is a a little bit scary. We all assume we have a very robust public health system until somebody writes a story like this and points out that we actually don't. Pandemic preparedness, guys. Pandemic preparedness. I guess that's something else to look out for in the budget on Monday. That's right. Yes. All right. Well, I chose a story also from The New York Times called How Chaos at Chain Pharmacies is Putting Patients at Risk by Ellen Gabler. And if you didn't already have enough to worry about in the healthcare system, this story will make it worse. It seems that many big chain pharmacies are so understaffed and the pharmacists there are so overworked that they live in mortal fear of making a mistake that could injure or kill someone, you know, like the guy who got eardrops instead of eye drops, or more seriously, a woman who was given a toxic chemotherapy drug instead of her antidepressant and died two weeks later. And once again, at least so the pharmacists say in the story, the problem is the push to do more work in less time so as to make a larger profit for the parent corporation. It also, I guess, explains why I get all those endless texts asking me to refill my prescriptions, even though I know full well when they will run out. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Sanger Cats. At Leonard K. Elk. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>